a science story. Huh. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm Erin Barker, the executive director of Story Collider, bringing you a special episode for the holidays this week featuring two of our most popular stories from the past. I am recording this in October before I go on parental leave, so I feel like I am speaking to you in the future, a mysterious future in which I am probably someone's mother, which still, even at nine months of pregnancy, feels a little bit startling. (laughs) So, in honor of that, and in honor of the season, today we're sharing two of our favorite stories about bringing children into the world. And in one of those cases, the children are turtles. Our first story is from Bianca Jones-Marlin. Bianca is a neuroscientist and the Herbert and Florence Irving Assistant Professor of Cell Research at the Zuckerman Institute at Columbia University. Her research investigates transgenerational epigenetic inheritance and how organisms unlock innate behaviors at appropriate times. Her story was recorded at our go-to venue in New York City, Caveat, in 2018. And if you're like Bianca and me and you found through personal experience that sometimes pregnancy does not play out the way Beyonce made it look, you'll be able to relate to this story. Here's Bianca. I have a PhD in attraction. <laughs> I should clarify, more specifically, my doctoral studies looked at the molecule that regulates the laws of attraction, a molecule called oxytocin. You may have heard about it, it's like the love drug. Nonetheless, it's released from our bodies during certain things like that, that foster communication and foster connections like holding hands, eye contact, orgasms, all the way to uterine contractions and milk breastfeeding. And so it helps to foster these relationships. And what my doctoral studies looked at was how oxytocin changes a very particular type of attraction, the attraction of a mother to her child. And oxytocin also has a uh, synthetic correlate, you may have heard of it, pitocin. Um, If you heard about it, not from the medical field, maybe because you Googled it on Amazon, because you could buy it on Amazon, Um, to bolster your sex life, don't buy it on Amazon. Um, But you also find it in hospitals because it's used to speed up birth and speed up labor and induce birth. And what we looked at in our studies was the fact that in mice, we looked at mammals, mice, um, virgins, they're actually just animals that have never given birth. We call them virgins, but like their sexual history is their own business. So, you know. But these virgins, they'll hear the sound of a baby crying, and they'll go up to the child, baby, baby mouse, mouse, the pup, and either ignore it and leave it to die, or they'll eat it. Yes, but after this virgin mouse finds its true love and white picket fence and gets knocked up, it will no longer cannibalize or leave mice to die. Instead, 
it will take care of pups crying. And this urge is so strong, this attraction is so strong that it will even take care of pups that aren't its own and it will take care of pups into old age. And what our study showed was that when you added oxytocin to virgins, even without them ever having babies, they would do the same task. So oxytocin really made bad moms into good moms and bad babysitters into pretty solid babysitters. And this is pretty close for me um, in, in, in my life because I was blessed enough to be raised by two parents who were also foster parents. So I had foster siblings. And I saw my siblings being loved in the family, being loved in my family, that my parents didn't birth them from their body, but they birthed them from their heart. And to see that oxytocin could save the day in that manner really allowed me to, to dive into my studies. And I really was just a big fan of oxytocin. <laughs> and then I got pregnant. <laughs> and in my mind, I had this all painted out. I was gonna be sitting with flowers behind me like Beyonce, my basketball belly. I was gonna have my husband rub oils on my feet like organic geranium. <laughs> my sisters are gonna fan my hair as like a white rite of passage. And of course I was gonna have like five hour labor because anything less than that you can't brag about. It's five hour labor. And I was gonna give an all natural birth, no medication, and my child will come out, we both sing. <laughs> and then <laughs> I'd be walking in the halls and walking in um, Central Park and I'd like just whip out my breasts and breastfeed my baby underneath the willows because oxytocin bonding time. And I had it, I had it all planned out. And so when I went to my obstetrician gynecologist, uh, who was also at NYU at the time, and um, told her this is what my plan was. <laughs> yeah, she did just that. She laughed in my face. And I was like, but, but I, I won awards about oxytocin. And she was like, you are going to want Pitocin, the, the synthetic analog, because you're going to want this baby to get out. And I was very firm in not wanting Pitocin. I wanted to see oxytocin operate in real time. I had dedicated so much of my life to studying this molecule. It was my turn to get it to work for me. And she said, I can do whatever I see fit, but she recommends Pitocin. And deep down inside, I was like, that's a dare. And I was <laughs> in competition with the lady who's going to be delivering my baby, which is less than ideal. <laughs> Nonetheless, Saturday morning came around, and I had my first labor pain. It was the same Saturday that I had signed up for an eight-hour Lamaze class for birthing and, and how to give birth. But whatever, oxytocin, I got this, right? So we had our labor pains, my husband and I, we walked around, we took pictures of me in labor, we bought champagne, we made sure the bag was packed, we put the timer on because in five hours, I was going to have a kid. <laughs> 24 hours later, I was still pregnant and in labor. And so that first night, he stayed up with me. He did massage my feet with geranium and other like things as I like hurled out the food that I eaten the day before. And my body just crushed underneath the pressure of labor pains. And I thought, what is happening? This is not the way Beyonce made it look. <laughs> and so at the 30-hour time point, they usually suggest that you go in when, you're, when your contractions are about two minutes, two minutes apart for two hours. Mine were three minutes 
three minutes apart for 30 hours. And so at 30 hours, I was over it. Mm -hmm. And so we got an Uber Black, jumped into the car, and I pulled up at NYU, and although I was 30 hours in labor, I was like, I'm here at NYU, I met oxytocin here, I met my husband here, and now I'm going to have my baby here. Took a picture. <laughs> and we got into the labor and delivery. And at this point, I'm just, I'm exhausted. As every time a labor pain comes, I'm just putting myself into this zone where I'm like, pulling my head back and forth and like humming and telling like, you're great, it's okay, you can do it, it's great. Oh my gosh, it's almost over, it's still two minutes. It was a whole intense thing. And so I pull, I'm, I'm in the labor and delivery room, and they go to check how dilated you are to see how close you are to giving birth. So eight centimeters, it's like, okay, you're almost close. Nine centimeters, like this baby's gonna come out. And so as the flush of labor pain comes about and I'm hearing the lady next door to me also scream in pain and she's like, where is my epidural? And then I hear like plastic crumble, a doctor walk in and she's like, <sighs> And I'm thinking, I want that. And my doctor comes up to me and he's like, so Bianca, you're two centimeters dilated. I was uh, going through something called prodromal labor, which gives you all of the labor benefits like labor pains, but none of the labor benefits like dilation. <laughs> and so we pulled up in an Uber Black and went back home in a yellow cab because the only other option I had was to take Pitocin to initiate the labor, and I was still in competition with the doctor. And so on the way home, my husband had already called the, our family on the way there because, you know, five hours, this is about 30 hours after that. Um, and so I walk into my house to find my mom, my dad, I should remind, I walk into my apartment <laughs> to find my mom, my dad, my sister, her best friend, my other sister, her husband, their one-year-old, and my mother-in-law, all in the apartment. And at this point, I haven't slept in two days. I'm walking to and fro in the hallway like a drunk zombie, trying to rip all aspects of clothing off my body as my husband runs behind me to throw the robe over because we have company. <laughs> and that night, uh, he fell asleep because he's been up for two days and I still had to track all of my labor pains and I saw it at two o'clock, 2.05, 2.10, 3.15, all the way to six o'clock being tracked. And Oxytocin was failing me. I had dedicated so much of my life to this, only to be in labor for longer than I was pregnant is what it felt like. <laughs> Day four rolls around, and I'm like, this is jokes. We need to go. And so we got, jump into another Uber Black because I'm still having a baby, guys. And so... <laughs> Um, and we pull up at NYU, this time no pictures. I'm like, get me a wheelchair. Somehow, I'm fairly confident I threatened someone, but I was in the room. I was in the room, and I knew it was time when I looked up and 20 medical students walked in because I gave birth in a teaching hospital. And I gave birth in the same teaching hospital I got my PhD in, so I recognized some of those faces. <laughs> and I did not care. <laughs> And I gave birth to a healthy baby daughter. Her name is Sage. 
and yeah, she's awesome. And um, like they they like take her out and then like they put her on you for skin to skin contact because that releases oxytocin and I've been having oxytocin released for four days. So they put her on my chest and the first thought that came to my mind was, get this slimy thing off of me. <laughs> oxytocin. <laughs> but I knew that I was going to mommy right. And so I made sure I breastfed her. I made sure I did skin to skin. I made sure that I was gonna have oxytocin released at all these moments. And six weeks in, after mommying correctly, I woke up to a migraine that was worse than my four days of labor pain. And my husband rushed, rushed me to the hospital and they immediately admitted me because my blood pressure was through the roof. And I kept on telling the doctor that I have a newborn at home and can you just give me this pain medication so I can go home. And what I wasn't hearing, which what, what he was telling me was that I had postpartum preeclampsia and it's marked by um, high blood pressure that then leads to seizures. And he told me that the most tragic thing he had ever seen was a young woman with a newborn baby come in and decide to leave the hospital only to die from seizures. I was admitted in and for those four days, I wasn't with my daughter. I didn't breastfeed her. I didn't have skin to skin contact. And I felt that all the work that I had done to prepare for that point was just being erased because oxytocin wasn't being released. And that fifth night, after being away, with her for, away from her for a week, when I did get home and I was able to lay my head on the pillow and go to sleep, I realized that in the hospital, I was attached to monitors and I had nurses on 24-hour seizure watch. And although I was flooded with contrast from my MRIs and contrast from my, my CAT scans and magnesium to keep me from seizing, I was in a safe place. And although when I got back, I couldn't feed, uh, breastfeed her because all the chemicals that were in my body, there was nothing that was hooking me up to anything to know that I was okay. And I couldn't go to sleep because I know if I wasn't okay, she wouldn't be okay. What I came to realize is that my connection with my daughter, who's now a year and a half old, isn't punctuated moments of oxytocin release. It's our life together. And oxytocin operates in a myriad of interactions, from the doctor who convinced me to stay and save my life, to my friends who were supportive when I left the hospital and couldn't breastfeed anymore because my milk had dropped, going back to work full time and talking me through not being with my baby. And I realized that every tear I shed when I was in the pump room and I only saw dribbles of milk come out that weren't going to support my baby, and every time I had to work late and couldn't be with her, and every time my heart broke for that, that was oxytocin. It was there the whole time. And as scientists, we have this way of making sure things are clean and experiments are proper, but that's not the way life is. We can't always predict the outcome. What I did learn is that Mother Nature will never leave us hanging. She is a mother after all. Thank you. That was Bianca Jones Marlin, incredible storyteller and incredible scientist. To learn more about her, visit our website, storycollider.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make Story Collider happen, but we know that can be intimidating and might not speak to you. 
So maybe becoming a Story Glider donor is more your speed. Story Glider donors play an increasingly important role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story Glider is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have in this mission, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storyclider.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclider.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider. Our next story is from Ed Pritchard. A native of South Florida, Ed has fostered a love for the marine environment since an early age. He's currently the Interpretive Program Supervisor and Site Manager with the Miami-Dade County Parks Department. We had a chance to work with Ed as part of a storytelling workshop that we held in partnership with the Tiffany & Co. Foundation in Miami in 2019. And he told his story on stage just the day after the workshop. Ed's story is all about the miracle of life, specifically turtle life, and I think that in the spirit of the season, you will really enjoy it. Here's Ed. So it's the summer after my undergrad, and I'm back in my hometown of Jupiter, Florida. Um, I'm sitting on the back of an ATV, and I'm cruising along the beach. It's at night, it's pitch black, um, and the driver of that ATV, her name is Kelly, and Kelly's a badass. She's a sea turtle biologist, and her and her research partner, Chris, um, they've dedicated their life to studying sea turtles, specifically the leatherback sea turtle. For those that have never heard of leatherback, they're the largest of the sea turtle species. And they're not like kind of the sea turtles that we, I mean, we've seen in movies, Crush from Finding Nemo. They're much larger, they're, and they're, they don't really have the shell that a, a loggerhead or a green turtle has, you know, the ones that we're used to seeing. It's a leathery, it's like a really rubbery skin, and they can grow from about four feet to about the size of like a Volkswagen Beetle. So they're these giants, and they're prehistoric. And so Kelly and Chris have dedicated their lives to this, and we're out there. Uh, Kelly has offered me a helping hand. She's offered me this job to help her on this leatherback project. And so her and Chris, they go out every summer, and they hunt for leatherbacks. Leatherbacks, the females, they come up on the beach uh, during the summer months to lay their eggs. Um, And Jupiter is a really important place for that. And so Kelly has offered me this job as a field tech. It's my first field job. I'm excited, but I'm nervous. Um, never worked with these charismatic species that you know I've grown to love. Um, but you know I'm also just anxious. And so I'm riding on the back of this ATV, and we're headed down the beach looking for leatherbacks. Um, it's like my first week of training, um, and we're looking for a track in the sand. We're looking for a track that shows that a female has come up to lay her eggs. Um, what do we do when we um, come up on these turtles? Uh, we have to basically get important data, but do it in a way that's respectful to these animals because they're up there doing something really, you know, important and a very private moment. Um, And so we have to get up there and we have to uh, get them at a time when they're basically, they get into this trance and they're just, um, they've dug, you know, they've done their thing, they've gotten up on the beach and they just get into this trance because they have to do one thing and it's to lay those eggs. So we get up there and working up a turtle we tag them. So we're tagging, putting little flipper tags so we can identify them if anyone catches them or 
um, if they come up on that beach later um, a different year. And we also have to measure them because we want to know how big they are and how big they can get. So how do you think you measure a turtle? And I asked Kelly that. And she's like, well, you just got to straddle it. So you basically just have to get on either side and you know, spread out that, that tape measure. And so you're basically straddling this giant and you're like, oh, I'm trying to be respectful. This turtle's trying to lay their eggs. I'm right on top of you. <laughs> so a little awkward. And you know, so you know, flash forward two weeks, and so I've learned the process. I, you know, we've gone on, you know, we've gone out there, we've seen a few different turtles, we've worked them up. Some of them are ones that Kelly knows really well. She's gotten really close to these animals. They all have names because they name them, you know, not just the little flipper tag with a number. Um, and so, you know, she knows some of them. Others are new, which is awesome, and we get to work up a new turtle. Um, but I've, I've learned the process. I'm still a little bit scared, you know, because I, you know, it's still coming up on these beasts in the middle of the night. Um, it's still a very, you know, walking that fine line between being respectful but also getting that important data that we need. Um, but finally, the night comes and Kelly says, you're ready to go out on your own. You're ready to ride on this ATV on yourself and find these turtles. Um, I'm just like pumped, but still just really nervous. Uh, so we cover a nine mile stretch of beach. It's a very wide beach. Um, so one of us goes north, the other goes south. Um, so I go south, we start around 8 p.m., um, you know, and I'm out there. And, and it's, you're working in these adverse conditions. It's, it's the beach at night, so it's, you know, it's dark. It was a new moon that night. Um, sometimes there are things that are happening on the beach, and, you know, you have to be, <laughs> have to be aware at all times pretty much. Um, and so one of the other things that happens during that time, we're out there in April, there's another species that comes up. I mentioned the loggerhead. They're another species that's important, it's endangered. They use that beach you know, for nesting. We have to be respectful to them. Um, but that's not our focus. We gotta get to where we need to go because we need to catch this leatherback. So it's basically like Mario Kart. You're like riding on this ATV down the beach, all these green, you know, green shells around you trying to <laughs> you know, avoid the green shells. Um, and you know you see some stuff on the beach, some promiscuous stuff. You know, there's people that go to a dark beach for that. Um, and you know, there's weather, and there's all sorts of different things out there. So it's 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 draining, and the nerves are still working. And there's nights where I have some mistaken identity. I see something dark, and and we use these night scopes to help us. So you know, I'm cruising on the beach, you know, finger on the throttle um, with the night scope, and you know, sometimes it's, you're mistaking it for a dune or a rock or a log or people having sex. So, you know, there's definitely that mistaken identity. But the night goes on and, you know, I, Kelly gets two turtles. She texts me on the other side. She gets two turtles on the other side, but I'm still looking for that turtle. And then I see a track. And, you know, my, I'm pumped. And I get out the night scope and I'm, scanning the track up to, you know, up to the top of the beach. And I, you know, I'm, I'm looking to see where in the process she is of nesting because we don't want to interrupt her if she's still digging because that can spook them and cause them to go back to the water without laying their eggs. We don't want that. And I notice that she's, she's digging. She's taking her front flippers and she's literally pushing the sand behind her. She's carving out this body pit so she can kind of get lower in the sand so she can start digging her egg chamber. So I noticed that. I text Kelly. I said, you know, I, I just got this turtle. I think she's just body pitting. We have time. 
And so I'm just sitting there on the ATV quiet and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for her and she finally finishes that part of the process. I'm okay, she's ready to dig her egg chamber. She, she does that with her rear flippers. So she takes the rear flippers and you know gets down into the sand and they dig out this body pit, it's about, or this uh, egg chamber. And it's about this wide and it's about two feet down. And so I'm waiting for her to make that motion with her rear flippers and I'm looking through the night scope and usually you can see her body move a little bit in the rear. I don't see that. And so I'm just waiting. I'm waiting to see what she's going to do next. And I'm waiting. And I start to get nervous. I'm like, well, what is she waiting for? Why is she still not in that process yet? I text Kelly. I said, I don't think she's, you know, digging that, that egg chamber. I'm going to get a little closer. I'm going to sneak up behind her. And, uh, you know, I get a little closer. I, I use, we have these red uh, headlamps because white light uh, distracts the turtle and it bothers them, but the red light they don't see very well. So I flip the, the headlamp on and immediately um, I get a reflection back from a metal, the metal tag on her front flipper. And I know, okay, this turtle's been tagged. And I get the number from the tag and then I'm scanning back along her body. I want to know where she's at now or where she's at in the process. And as soon as I get to the rear, I notice something's off. Something's not right. And I text Kelly, I say, I have the tag, it's a tag turtle, and she's missing her rear flippers. And all I see are just nubs where these slender, pretty long flippers are supposed to be. And I text Kelly that, and she says, oh, it's Clover. And now I'm on the phone with Kelly, and I'm like, what's Clover? What's Clover's story? And she's like, I'm with another turtle right now, and I'm going to get there as soon as I can, but you're going to have to start digging. You're going to have to dig her egg chamber. And I'm like, I know what that looks like, but I'm, my heart leapt out of my chest, and I'm just, you know, adrenaline, and I get down on my hands on knees, and... Um, I know I have to be a turtle midwife for her. <laughs> and so I start digging. Like, leatherbacks are usually very meticulous. They take one flipper over the other and they scoop out that sand one at a time and they carve out this little chamber. I'm just freaking throwing sand everywhere, <laughs> digging down. I'm, yeah, just wild. And I finally, I'm, I'm digging. I know it has to be about two feet. And I'm at my shoulder. Now I'm digging, I'm at my shoulder, and then I feel this warm, warm, moist thing just drop on my arm and roll down. And I know she's ready. She's ready to start laying those eggs. And, and it drops into the hole, and I just kind of leap back, and I, you know, I just sit there and I, I watch her, and she's... She's breathing really heavily now because she's in that process of dropping those eggs. And she's, um, the, the, these turtles do something when they're laying their eggs. They start crying, not because they're in pain, but because they, they're on the beach where it's really dry. They're not used to that kind of environment. And they're also covered in sand. So they cry to like moisten up their eyes and to get that sand out. And so there she is just, you know, crying and, and breathing. And I'm in that moment and, at some point, Kelly comes up and she tells me Clover's story. Clover, you know, had, uh, when they first got her, spotted her, 
she was missing one rear flipper. She got, it got taken off by a shark. And then at some point over the next few years, the other one got taken off by a shark because at some point she got really, she wasn't able to be as agile. And um, she's like, you know, uh, we work up the turtle, we measure her and do all that stuff, and then we just kind of sit there and wait for her to finish that process. And she ends up dropping 115 eggs, and we start to see the little nubs move again because she's ready to start covering that nest. And so we get down on our hands and knees and we help her with that too. We're, now we're both turtle midwives. And, you know, we cover up that nest, and then she does, her, her end of her process is to take her front flippers and throw sand to camouflage. So she starts doing that, and it's starting to get light out because it's way early in the morning now. And um, so we watch her; she gets up and or she starts to crawl back. And I'm just amazed by you know how how much fortitude she has because she's had so much trauma. And now she's doing what she instinctually knows what to do, and she's creating the next generation of turtles. And you know, I lent her a helping hand that night, um, but I know that you know. For that species to really survive, you know, we all need to lead, you know, lend that helping hand for her. So, thank you. That was Ed Pritchard. If you'd like to learn more about Ed, you can visit our website, storyclider.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Story Collider, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use them all. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storycollider.org to become a financial supporter. Or if you want to come to a recording session of one of our shows or want to start your own Story Collider show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website, too. Story Collider is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Misha Gajewski, Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and me, Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of the Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode are from shows produced by Paula Croxon and Tracy Rowland, and by Christine Gentry and Gastor Almonte, respectively. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Burnson, and Lindsay Cooper. Happy holidays, everybody. Our theme music is by Ghost. And next week, in honor of the new year, we'll be back with some classic stories about fresh starts. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.